Good morning, Christ Prez. We're in our humility deep dive, and in these sermons, we're exploring how the entire Christian life, from creation to new creation, is meant to lead us into humility. Last week, we looked at the humility of creation and saw that what Scripture teaches about our place in creation can help us have a proper estimate of ourselves. That's part of what it is to be humble, to have humility. It's to have an accurate understanding of who we are, both our strengths and our weaknesses. Um, what do we see? We, we saw that we're not needed, but we're wanted. Tiny, but God is mindful of us. Needy, but God cares for us. Dust, but spirit-filled dust. Fallen, but still bearing the image of God. I wonder if you got outside this past week, gazed at a big tree, and embraced the lowly, glorious humility of being one of God's beloved creatures. If not, it's not too late. There are still a lot of big trees out there. Well, this week, we're going to shift our attention to the humility of salvation. And let's dig into this by looking at what our passage in Ephesians tells us about the humility of our need for salvation and then the humility of how it comes to us. Okay, so first let's look at the humility of our need for salvation. Part of humility is having a proper estimate of ourselves. How does Paul describe the human condition and our need for salvation? Let me point out three things. First, death. Paul says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Now that might might sound strange because clearly as long as we've been alive, uh, we've been alive, not dead. It's not like you're dead before God saves you and then once God saves you, you're suddenly alive. Or is it? See, Paul must not be talking about physical death, but spiritual death. This is a theme that we can trace all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember what God told Adam about the tree? Listen again. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, God says. And then Adam does eat of the tree and does he die? Well, no, not physically, at least not, not, not right away. He goes on and he lives a really long life. But he does die another kind of death, a spiritual death, the kind of death that inevitably comes when we rebel against the one who is himself the source of all light and life and love. And so Adam experienced a spiritual death. And get this, in Adam, we died too. That's what scripture teaches. It's like somehow what he did counted for us. It's like somehow we were included in his sin. Now that's at odds with our Western individualistic sensibilities. We tend to think that I'm only responsible for my own decisions. But the Bible's view is more complicated and nuanced. Paul tells us in Romans that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam brings sin into the world and we're included in that sin and death, partly because we arrive on the scene, when we arrive on the scene, we do the exact same thing Adam did. We sin too. We rebel against God and we stop trusting in his grace and love and we move out on our own apart from him. But Paul goes even further in 1 Corinthians and he tells us all humanity dies in Adam. 
we're included in his sin and death. And so just like Adam, we're dead in our sins, dead in our sins. The temptation is to downplay the seriousness of this, to say, of course, sin is a big deal, uh, but it's just part of the picture. There's bad in me, but there's also good in me. I still bear the image of God after all. As long as I can get the good to outweigh the bad, surely God will understand and things will work out all right. Or we think, yeah, sin is bad, but it's basically like a disease. And if we can just apply the right healing techniques, we can take care of the problem. Better counseling, better accountability, a bit more discipline, better education. But Paul isn't saying that apart from Jesus, we're sick in our sins. He's not saying we've got a bad cold in our sins. He's not even saying we've got a really bad sin disease that's set on destroying us. What he says is that the destruction has been done. Apart from Jesus, you are dead. Have you ever tried giving medicine to a dead person? No, dead people are dead, which means that we can't really overestimate the seriousness of this. Our sin means nothing less than being cut off from the source of light and love and life. It means death. It means having forfeited forever the life for which we were created. Part of humility is having an accurate awareness of our strengths and weaknesses. Well, <clears throat> what are the strengths of dead people? I don't know. Probably not very many. That's not all Paul shows. A second, slavery. Now, Paul doesn't use that word, but look again at verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 and listen to the language that Paul uses. He says, You were dead in your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul says that we were living a certain kind of life, and the language he uses suggests that we didn't really have a choice in the matter. It's like we were being controlled and guided. Who or what was it that holds us in this kind of captivity to sin? Well, Paul mentions three things. First, the world. Paul says that we were following the course of this world. And again, the implication is that we couldn't do otherwise. It's like apart from Christ, we were enslaved by our external reality. We get caught up in patterns of an entire world that has turned away from God. We don't like this idea because we like to think that we have minds of our own and that we're immune to pressure from our surroundings. But our passage gives us a picture of our true condition. Apart from salvation, everyone follows the course of the world. We're all wrapped up in this system of values and a way of being that is fundamentally opposed to God. Well, second, Paul says, uh, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, Paul is reminding us that um, there is this spiritual battle going on. It's not just that the world's values don't line up with God's. It's that there's a spiritual power at work behind the scenes, leveraging the world system to destroy you. And then finally, Paul says that we are enslaved by the passions of the flesh. The flesh is a way of talking about our fallen human nature in its totality. We see that in the next phrase when Paul says that we carry out the desires of our bodies and our minds. In other words, our desires are, are fundamentally misdirected away from God. So it's not just that there are worldly and spiritual external forces at work on us, but apart from Christ, 
Uh, we simply enjoy sinning. It's what we want to do. People like to make much of the idea of free will, but here we see that our free will isn't really free at all. It just chooses sin again and again and again. We don't choose God, we choose something or someone else. And so we're enslaved by this triad of enemies, which are often referred to as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And part of humility is having a proper estimate of ourselves. And how are we doing so far? Dead, enslaved, not so good. It gets worse. Third, condemnation. Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is he saying? Wrath. What's that about? Whose wrath? Well, the implication is God's. Now, the idea of God being wrathful doesn't exactly warm the heart. It might even sound a little archaic, maybe primitive. We don't like the idea of a wrathful God because we have an intuition that God's wrath and love are in opposition to each other. But remember, we've talked about this before. That's not really quite right. God's wrath isn't opposed to his love. Uh, in fact, it's only because God is love that he's also a God of wrath. We could even say this, I think. God's wrath is simply the form his love takes against sin and evil wherever it's found. It's the form that his love takes against everything that opposes his love. A loving God doesn't allow sin and evil to go unchecked. He's determined to condemn it. You know, there are times as a parent when I get angry with my boys because I'm a sinful man who lacks patience. There are times when I get angry with them precisely because I'm failing to love them well. But there are also times when I get angry with them because I see them hurting themselves and hurting each other and I love them. I want them to flourish. I want them to become good human beings. Now that's an imperfect analogy, of course. Um, but something like that we can say is happening with God toward us, with his love. And see, the question then is what happens when we do hurt ourselves and when we do hurt each other and when the evil is us? Well, then God's love toward us uh, takes the form of wrath. That's what it means to be children of wrath. It means to be worthy of condemnation in this way. Um, because it's not just the world that's evil and it's not just the devil that's evil, these spiritual forces. Um, we go on sinning just fine without them. At the end of the day, we have no one to blame for our sin but ourselves. We are responsible moral agents who choose to rebel against perfect love. And therefore, Paul says, we're children of wrath like the rest. Part of having humility means having a proper estimate of ourselves. Well, here you go. Death, enslavement, condemnation. You might be thinking, Kevin, that doesn't lead to humility. That leads to hopelessness. And if all we had were those first three verses of our passage, that's right. We would be hopeless because we have completely forfeited the lives we were made for. And there's nothing we can do to get back on track. I mean, dead people simply cannot save themselves. But now let's look at the humility of how our salvation comes to us. Verse four, but God. Death, slavery, condemnation, but God. 
You see, family, salvation has come to us. Let's look at the humility of how it comes. Let's ask first about why God saves us. Why does God save us? You know, one common view about salvation is that God saves us because that's his job. He's kind of obligated to forgive our sin and to free us from our spiritual bondage and to give us new life. He saves us because that's more or less what he owes us as his creatures. He has to save us. But that's not the Bible's view. According to the Bible, God does not owe us salvation. He isn't obligated to give us new life. If God saves us, he doesn't save us because he has to. If he saves us, he does it in perfect freedom. Well, another common view is that sure, God doesn't owe us salvation, but he is committed to saving people who live basically good lives. And I don't know exactly how this would work, but maybe you could imagine a sheet of paper and a line dividing the paper in half vertically. And on one side of the line go all the good things you do in your life. And on the other side, go all the bad things you do. And as long as the good outweigh the bad, you'll be all right. Because of course you're not perfect, but your life is on the whole pretty good. You might not be Mother Teresa, but you're not Adolf Hitler. Well, in this view, salvation depends on you keeping your life mostly good or at least more good than bad. But now let's look at what Paul says. Why does God save us? Does he save us because of anything about us? Look again at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, why does God save us? Because of the great love with which he loved us. God saved us because in perfect loving freedom, he desired to, which means that salvation comes to us as grace. Yes, saving us is consistent with God's character, He's rich in mercy, he's full of love, but ultimately our salvation is complete gift. And the only thing it depends on is God's willingness to give it. Our salvation depends on nothing except God. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, you or I could do to save ourselves. Going to church doesn't do it. Reading your Bible doesn't do it. Resisting temptation and fighting sin doesn't do it. Serving the poor doesn't do it. Attending all five of our humility talks will not save you. Although I considered promoting the talks in that way. Praying a whole lot will not save you. Fighting for justice will not save you. Becoming a more virtuous human being will not save you. Putting the needs of others before your own will not save you. Salvation depends on God plus nothing. And let's take this even further. <clears throat> Sometimes we talk about salvation as if, as if it ultimately depends on our response to God's grace. We'll acknowledge that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Salvation is by grace alone. But then we end up treating our faith as the one thing we do to save ourselves. Like God offers salvation to everyone by sheer grace, but then it's ultimately up to us to respond to God's grace and to appropriate God's grace by our faith. The decisive factor in our salvation then is not God's grace, but our response to it. Look at verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. You see, is faith included in our salvation? Absolutely. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. But the question is, who is responsible for our faith? Are we responsible for it? Or is God? Well, we don't have to guess about this. Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So there's God's grace and there's our response to God's grace, faith, and all of that together is not finally our own doing. Faith itself is a gift from God. Faith itself is a form of grace. Otherwise, you could boast about your faith. You could boast that you were a little humbler, a little wiser, a little more spiritually sensitive. You had the insight or maybe just the gut instinct to trust Jesus for salvation, and that's what sets you apart. But Paul says our salvation is not the result of work so that no one may boast. So why does God save us? Because of us? No, family. God saves us because God. He saves us because he's rich in mercy and full of grace. He saves us because he loves us. Another way to say this is that he saves us because he's humble. He's other-oriented. He puts our needs before his own. And there's just no pressing behind that. God loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, because it's who he is. Now, let's ask, how does he do it? How does God save us? Well, look at verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is so interesting. Paul is talking about three stages in the courses of Jesus' life, his resurrection, his ascension, and his being seated at the right hand of the Father. So these are things that happened to Jesus. But Paul is talking here not about Jesus, but about us. He says that God made us alive together with Christ, that he raised us up with him, that he seated us with him in the heavenly places, and that all of that has happened in Christ Jesus. How does God save us? It's like he saves us by saving Jesus, and somehow we're in Jesus just as we were in Adam, only maybe even more so. He saves us by uniting us with Jesus Christ. If you ask me, how does that work? I'll answer, I don't know, family. I mean, this is above my pay grade. I don't know how it works any more than you do, but it works. And it brings us to the very heart of the Christian faith that Jesus is God with us and for us. That in complete humility, he identifies with us. He comes to be with us and for us, even in our death and enslavement and condemnation. And he takes on to himself the consequences of all of it. And he bears it and he bears it away. And so at the end of his life, we see Jesus die, not just a physical death, but a kind of eternal spiritual death in his cry of God forsakenness. According to the New Testament, we're included in that. 
It's like Jesus' death counts for us. Listen to this from Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And that's exactly what Paul says has happened here. Not only are we included in Jesus' life and death, we're also included in the rest of it. We've been raised with raised from death in Christ and we have been exalted in Christ and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Part of humility is having an accurate view of yourself, an accurate assessment of who you really are. Well, it's looking a little better now. Raised with Christ, united to Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How does God save us? By uniting us with Jesus. We're saved through this union with Christ. It's like God saves us by becoming human, by joining himself with us, by joining us with Jesus. It's like he saves us by saving Jesus and putting us in him. Now last, let's ask, what does God save us for? First, look at verse 7. Paul tells us that God has done this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God saves us so that for all eternity, we will experience the glory and beauty and goodness of being with God and knowing his grace. He saved us to drop us into this ocean of his love and we'll never plumb the depths of it. He saved us to share the immeasurable riches of his grace with us forever. Also look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God has created and has now recreated us in Christ like a composer might write a symphony. And he's given us a song to play. It's the music of being truly human. It's the music of humble Christ-likeness. God has saved us from death, slavery, and condemnation. He's done that in and through Christ, all by grace. And he's done it so that now, having been saved, we will live these beautiful, holy lives of humble love. Part of humility is having an accurate assessment of ourselves. Family, will you see who you are? Sinners saved by grace. Dead in your sins, but made alive in Christ. In fact, now he is our life. And so now this is your identity. Humble, however fallible. One who is other-oriented. One who lifts others up as you have been lifted up. Embrace the humble life for which you were created. Embrace the humble God who has stooped so low to embrace you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.